You ever gotten to uh, the end of a book and you were enjoying the book immensely and you got to the last chapter and then the last page and you said, oh, man, is that, that's the end? Or a movie or a play where you get there and it's just somehow not satisfying. It just seems to be almost out of place uh, with the rest of the book or the movie or the play. Well, this psalm, some would say, is one of those. In fact, some who like to chop up Scripture say that the latter part of this psalm, and you'll see in a moment what I'm talking about, the latter part really shouldn't be there. I don't agree for a moment with that. In fact, I'm convinced that a right understanding of this psalm not only will not lead us to dissatisfaction at the end, but as we look at the big picture of Scripture, it will take us to the absolute most satisfying thing. And so I want you to, as we read Psalm 95, pay close attention with the flow and then see where we will go from the end of this psalm. Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John Calvin, on Friday, was 500 years old. We should celebrate because of what he means to us. There was a, a gathering over in Europe in order to commemorate and to celebrate. He wrote in the preface to his commentary on the Psalms when he was a young man 
perhaps around 21 years old, that God turned my course in another direction. That God subdued and tamed to teachableness a mind too stubborn for its years. And as we know, he then had a wholehearted commitment to God through Christ. The emblem of that is his seal. And on his seal is a hand holding a heart and then with an inscription that says, My heart I give you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Let's pray that as we go into this psalm and move towards the Lord's table, that we will be able to give him our hearts promptly and sincerely. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, we do ask, and we ask you because we aren't able to do it in our own strength. We ask that you would enable us to serve up our hearts to you. We need to hear from you. We need understanding with this psalm. We need preparation for the Lord's table. We need you. And so we come to you as your children, pleading in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in this psalm, I am going to divide it up. As you know, sometimes in the psalms that we've dealt with this summer, I haven't really outlined them, but, and this is going to be a very uh, broad outline, but what we are going to look at is really uh, two calls, a call for a right response to God. We will see that from the psalmist, and then a call for a right response to the circumstances that we deal with. And so I want us to look in those broad terms, all the while knowing that we are, we are headed to this table in a few moments. What's this psalm have to do with that? There is, I believe, just the right transition especially as we come to the end of the psalm. So look first of all at uh, this call for a right response, the first couple of verses. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Shouting aloud, singing for joy to the Lord at 8.45 in the morning is not always the easiest thing. And I, as I was preparing this, I, I thought, you know, our team from Haiti is going to be back here. And typically when people come back from Haiti and they've worshipped with the Haitians, 
we seem pretty calm, let's just put it that way, uh, next to the way they worship there. But then the other side of it is one of our other areas of focus is Ukraine. And when I've worshipped with them, it's wonderful worship, but it seems calm compared to us. So we've got to be careful that we not think there is one right outward expression of worship, like we all need to be a bunch of Haitians, or we all need to be uh, like people in Ukraine, or they all need to be like us. But we do need to have this heart, the heart of shouting aloud to the rock of our salvation, singing for joy. Now, this passage doesn't necessarily tell us why, or rather these verses don't. It will in a minute tell us why we need to do that. It's not real specific in terms of how, though. But the Scripture is. Now, here's here's what we need to uh, uh, grasp in this. And I just mentioned John Calvin. Well, uh, during the Reformation, there were different views in terms of worship, what, what should be included in worship. There were those that said, include anything in worship that isn't forbidden. Now, everyone would agree that if something is forbidden, it should not be included in worship. But not everyone agrees that you can include just anything out there. In fact, our perspective, as would have been Calvin's, was what we call the regulative principle. And that is, it's not just we include anything as long as it's not forbidden, but what is in worship should be that which was prescribed by God Himself because He's the only one that knows what pleases Him. It's like us, if you have a spouse or a very good friend. You can't tell them what pleases them. They're the only ones that ultimately can say that. Certainly that's the case with God. And so that would be our perspective. And that is we listen to God. That's our desire at least. We do it imperfectly at best. But our desire is to include in worship that which God has said brings him glory. And only those things and not things that we make up that we think he ought to like. Now, it goes on then in verse 3, and it gives the first recent reason for worship with joy. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Now, here's where faith comes in. You might say, I, I, don't, I don't see faith. Of course, he's the great God, the great King above all gods. Well, here's the thing. They were in their day, and we are in our day without the visible great king. We say he exists. They had a king they could look to, but not the great king that all of the kings pointed toward. It's Christ. And so when we say this, he is the great God, the great king, king above all gods, we 
have to be saying that by faith. Because sometimes the circumstances that we are dealing with don't support that there is the great king who is in charge. In other words, our sight doesn't always support that. And so, when we say this, the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods, we are stepping out on faith that that is the case. Now, the, again, the next two verses elaborate on how he is above all gods. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth. And the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So here's the the two aspects that it begins with here. And that is that he's the creator. But he didn't just create and kind of set it into motion. He's the creator and the sustainer. And because he is the creator, and the sustainer. He is worthy of praise. That's where we begin in our praise. And then verse 6, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Now already it is said uh, that we are to be singing for joy, shouting aloud, extolling with music. And here... We have the humble approach before God. Not that any of those are not humble, but this one obviously is humble. Bowing down in worship, kneeling before the Lord, shows humility before the great king. And why is that? Well, as the flow goes for verse 7, he is our God. And we're the people of his pasture flock under his care. There is a real sense that we're his prized possession. Now it's already said, look, he's the creator of this universe. He takes care of uh, the waters and, and the sea and all of those things. But we are his flock. We're his pride. And that's what ought to drive us to our knees to bow down before him. He's our maker, but he prizes us among all of his creation. The only way that wouldn't humble us would be if we didn't recognize how great, how big of a God he is. C.S. Lewis in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia. We have uh, one of the characters, Lucy, who is caught up in her uh, spiritual quest. And she comes in contact with Aslan, who is uh, a lion, and he is a great and a magnificent lion. She sees him. He's lying there. She comes up to him, leans on him, and he just he rolls over and she, she flies. She, she falls off because he's so big. 
but she wants to be next to him. She looks up into his eyes, his large face and mane, and he says, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Aslan responded, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you are bigger, she asked. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Lewis was trying to get across to us in that beautiful picture that as we grow, as we mature, that the Lord Jesus expands and he grows and we see him as a bigger and a greater God. That's different than the way the world works, isn't it? You know, as you grow up and you go back to your old neighborhood and you see your house and you say, wow, that's little. When it comes to faith, as our faith expands, the Savior grows. Now there's the second call, and that's for a right response to life circumstances. It's one thing to respond rightly in the context of kind of official worship from an outward perspective. But it's another thing to have a right attitude and response to God during trials, during difficulties. And these verses give us, gave them a warning. Verse 7, the last part. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day in Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. Now, we can't soften our own hearts. Only God can do that. But evidently, we can harden our hearts toward him. And he gives this example. Meribah and Massa. Exodus 17, Israel had been in Egypt 400 years. There had been the series of plagues uh, that God had used in order to cause Pharaoh to release his people. As they were released and went into the desert, God continually provided for them. He provided food for them. He provided guidance in their travel with a pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. They get to the Red Sea. He opens it up for them, protects them as he closes it over Pharaoh's soldiers. Again and again, you see God protecting, providing for them. And what was their response? You're not doing enough for us. not doing enough for your people. 
And so while they'd be satisfied for a brief time, then they'd become dissatisfied. And that's what he's talking about here. And we can too easily be in danger of falling into that same plight. Having seen how God has worked in our lives and in the lives of those around us, and then we come to a difficult time and we are upset that He's not doing enough for us. And here, the psalmist, in the context of worship, says, don't you harden your hearts like the people of Israel did in that day. Now, what is a hardened heart? What's it look like? I'm sure there's many characteristics, but as a pastor, I believe that when I see people pulling away from God's people, and not missing them. That's evidence that a heart is growing hard. When I see people pulling away from worship and not needing it, that's evidence that a heart is growing hard. And when people don't desire the food of the Word of God, it's evidence of a hardening heart. But here's the warning. Look at God's reaction. Verse 10. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, you're a people whose hearts go astray. They've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, there it is. That's, that would be the unsatisfying ending if it weren't for the fact that the cross of Christ is the ultimate ending to this. It's the right ending. And I told you that this ending leads us to the most satisfying thing of all, and that is the satisfaction of God instead of his anger. So the answer to his anger? Well, propitiation, of course. What is he talking about? <laughs> propitiation. It's a word that we really, let's face it, don't use anywhere else other than in theology. But it's a precious concept. Propitiation means we're subject to God's wrath and deserving punishment, but Christ endures the penalty. In other words, His wrath, His anger belongs on us. That's what we deserve. And there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to not deserve it because of our actions and because of who we are. And that's why it was necessary for the cross and for Christ. The one who lived the perfect life that did not deserve 
his wrath and anger, stepped up and for his people had all of God's wrath and his anger for all of their sins, for all time, placed upon him on the cross. The Hebrew word for that, atonement, is kippur. You've heard of Yom Kippur. Faithful Jews will celebrate that in September. But we would say it was fulfilled. The day of Kippur, the day of covering, the day of atonement is when Jesus was on the cross for us. In the book of Hebrews, we read, Jesus sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So we don't need to fear his wrath. His completed work on the cross, which we celebrate at this table, his finished work. But who was it for? Well, Hebrews 3 and 4 quotes Psalm 95 to the greatest extent of any Old Testament passage uh, that's quoted in the New Testament. And in that, we see it a couple of more times in Hebrews. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did. So here's, here's what it is for us. Don't stand on the edge of the promised land and demand more proof, pondering whether or not you will receive the gift. Because if you do, your heart may be hardened. Today, the psalmist says, the writer of Hebrews says, will not last forever. Peace with God is for those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And so we read in Hebrews 4. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's bow together.